Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. We're going to continue a series that we started, oh, several weeks ago that has been very popular. In the past, you'll recall that we do like to occasionally talk about object lessons, people who have failed to plan correctly and the bad stuff that happens. So we found that it's actually a great teaching tool. It manages to take a subject that is sometimes perceived as dry, uh, I don't perceive it as as dry as some might, the subject of estate planning, but I know that many do. So it really takes a subject that that might not inherently stimulate a lot of interest, but you put it in context, you put it in the lives of people whose names we recognize, famous and infamous people, and we talk about how it impacted their lives and what what you know, were the things that had they done these things differently. And this always involves very simple stuff. That's the thing about estate planning. It's not like, well, gee, things would have gone well for him if he'd started exercising discipline at age 18 and had planned his life better and done this better. Yeah, those those sort of ifs or what ifs, those assume a lot. Whereas the thing about talking about estate planning is it's something that a few moments in time, almost without exception, a very, very small, insignificant amount of money uh, in terms of doing the estate planning. Um, so th- these really do fascinate people because you can see how badly things can go wrong with something so simple to correct, and yet people often don't do it. And people who we think you know, are re- and who are really smart people, successful people, and they don't do this. So Marley is wonderful at identifying candidates for our subject matter. And I guess it, I guess it's the sort of thing where you don't want to end up as the subject matter <laughs> for a show like this. We don't, we don't have any shows we've done, I don't think, where people have done it all right. Mm-mm. Maybe there's an exception to that, but let's face it, it's more interesting I guess to watch an automobile accident than than just a you know a routine safe day on the highway. Um, we're all you know fascinated things like that. So, uh, but it is a chance to learn. So it's not just you know we're not here to to simply entertain you. We're here to to teach you stuff that's applicable to you. Even though these numbers, as we said, the numbers are bigger because of typically they're a lot bigger because these people are generally famous and have money. But the points are the same. And they apply many of the things we'll talk about today. You'll see uh, will apply to you as well. Uh, so Marley gave us a a candidate, an example of a failure to plan adequately that I think you'll find very interesting. Do you want to? And this you'll see here in a few minutes that it's purely coincidental that this is somebody that I have an interest in and know something about uh, since I was a kid. But why don't you go ahead and introduce our our subject. Yeah, so today we're talking about Howard Hughes, um, you know, American billionaire. Um, He was a film producer, a philanthropist, um, an engineer, a pilot, all kinds of things. Um, And he, you know, seemed to have it all until up until the very end when it didn't, he didn't have one of the biggest things he needed, which was an estate plan. 
Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. Yeah, I'm wondering. Uh, I think most of our audience will know who Howard Hughes is. You probably didn't. Did, did you know the name? I oh. knew the name. I definitely didn't knew the name. I've learned about him in history class and um, everything okay. like that. But And I had watched the Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Oh, the movie. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Howard Hughes movie. Was that called The Aviator, I think? Yes, it was. Mm. Well, um, I've not seen that movie. But it, this is purely, and you don't know this, but when I saw that you had chosen the subject, I kind of smiled because as a kid, I had an interest in... I had an interest in investments and things like that. I don't know where this came from, but so I really looked up to Howard Hughes. Some people's fans are baseball player Mickey Mantle and and others. I didn't. I wasn't so much a follower of of sports, but I was a big, big fan of Howard Hughes. So I even wrote a letter to to Howard Hughes, who was this. Uh, I mean, he he lived this ascetic ex- existence. He was. Um, you know, virtually you couldn't locate him. He he lived very privately. So I knew this, and yet I thought that he might reply to a letter that I wrote him just telling him that I really thought he was great and the things he'd accomplished and that I was a fan. I doubt he would get many fan letters. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe I was the only one that ever sent him one, but um, people respected him and he was famous, but he he wasn't like he wasn't treated like a sports star, of course. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but to me he was, and so I couldn't have been more than twelve years old, and maybe younger than that. But I still have the letter that I got back from Hughes Tool Company because I didn't know where to send it, and I knew Hughes Tool Company uh, was was his primary source of revenue, and so I, I eagerly consumed these four or five biographies that that existed back mm-hmm. then, virtually all in softback. You know, so they, I don't know how, these weren't scholarly books, but it was all I could find, you know, in drugstores and whatnot when I was a kid in my small town. So I actually became an, I mean, I was very knowledgeable about him. I'd read everything that had been written about him and followed um, developments in the newspaper, et cetera. So I kind of dropped off from following him, you know, by the time I was maybe 16 or 17. I mean, there was this period of time, but I maintained an interest in him because I thought he was fascinating. And so I'll tell you a little bit more about him. He, uh, his father, his father was uh, credited with having the patent to really the only tool design that would actually penetrate layers of rock, a shell, you know, early in the oil industry. And this was one of the obstacles to to accessing, you know, these billions of barrels of oil that existed below the surface in Texas and elsewhere. But his dad was in Houston, Texas, and he was a wildcatter, and and yet he had an engineer's brain. As a matter of fact, I think he may have gone to Rice University, as did Howard Hughes. So Rice University was known as primarily an engineering school. Mm-hmm. So anyway, his dad, though, was a, you know, lived out out in the, the oil fields, and it was a rough and tumble world. You know, uh, these people would be found in the evenings playing cards and gambling in saloons and whatnot around Texas. So this would have been probably in the late 19th century. Um, and and so the story goes 
that it was a gambling bet one night where they were playing. This guy had this design on a piece of paper for an oil bet, and he threw it into the pot. It was all he had, and some somebody who had just come up with a clever idea, and that so the story goes, maybe apocryphal, that uh, that Howard Hughes's dad won that that <laughs> bet, and so he goes out and he he records this patent, and uh, it turns out that. It was almost for maybe a decade plus was almost the exclusive way, certainly the best design for a a way to access the billions of dollars in this oil under the ground mm-hmm. where you have to go through rock. Um, so you can imagine what would what would somebody get paid by oil companies to use their bit design? So um, what what really the story of Howard Hughes' life to some extent is that he had Hughes Tool Company to fund his every impetuous want or desire. I mean, whether it's practical or impractical, he had he had this Hughes Tool Company, which his dad owned. And just to, let me step back a minute. His mother had died, and then his dad died, so maybe not in that order. But he was an orphan when he was like 17 or 18. And and in Texas at the time, you were a minor until I think 21. So he had to, he was a an orphan, you know, a boy in many ways, 17 or 18. But he goes to court and has himself emancipated. They have a hearing. And of course, it's in Houston. You know, he had connections. His family had connections in any case. So he gets declared an adult. Uh, legally, which you can do even today under certain circumstances. So his aunt was to get, his dad's sister was to get part of the ownership, which she happily sold to him, So, uh, which he financed through the tool company. So suddenly here you have this 17, 18-year-old guy in Texas who was had more money than he could possibly waste. I mean, he couldn't even spend enough, as he proved in Hollywood. Uh, so... He, um, what, what do you think a guy like that would do? Well, he goes off to Hollywood. He had completed, I think he completed his degree at Rice University, but he would have been near the completion of that when, when this hearing, when the gavel went down on his emancipation. So it wasn't long after that anyway that he goes on to to Hollywood. Yeah. And he had this interest in movies, as you, I was reading your notes mm-hmm. here, which are, which mentions that his three, you know, what he's noted for as a producer and a director uh, Hell's Angels, not to be confused, the movie that came along in the 60s, Hell's Angels, Scarface, the original Scarface, which is, you yep. know, it's a, it, it not not the Brian De Palma movie, but it actually got, I think, an Academy Award. Mm-hmm. These He got uh, acknowledgement in the film industry uh, for a number of films. Another one was The Outlaw with Jane Russell. This was, you know, a notorious movie because it had a scene that, you know, there's some cleavage shown, and at the time, this was very, very controversial. And and so Howard Hughes, you know, he pushed against all the rules. He pushed against the censors. He was always in fights his whole life, you know, in courtrooms and whatnot and hearings, and, and it was just his personality. But he was determined to have these movies the way he wanted them. He developed an interest in flying, mm-hmm. broke world records, several world records in flying around the world, uh, he beat Lindbergh's record from the U.S. to to Europe mm-hmm. or transatlantic. Um, he uh, he he wrote he broke also just speed records for shorter flights. Um, but what was particularly impressive about him was both in the film industry as well as 
regarding aviation was he was fanatically um, interested in engineering technicalities. I mean, he was he obviously had a you know an engineer's sort of brain, and he uh, he designed and and innovated in aircrafts in ways that had never been done before. So um, he was Lindbergh, of course, had some mechanical skills and some skills of that nature too, but not like Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes created you know truly novel things and um, and he uh, he he was just fascinated with invention in that way and he his movies he would insist on scenes uh, I guess it was Hell's Angels that had some war scenes where the you know the the pilots the stunt pilots and this is around 29 1929 1930. So the, even the stunt pilots were unwilling to do some of the dogfighting scenes that he, that he wanted done. And so he gets in the plane himself, and he did this more than once in filming, and he was a very skilled pilot. So he does these stunts that even the stuntmen refuse to do, and it turns out for good reason. Um, he, he had two crashes during this period of his life, one that almost killed him. He was in the hospital in traction for months. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I liked it. You can see why this guy would be fascinating if you know much about him, even to a twelve-year-old kid. <laughs> I was I was impressed with his his financial success, but but I was also impressed with with you know his his innovations, uh, the diversity of his talents. You know, managing to produce great movies and then turn and produce great airplanes and designed what at one time was called the Spruce Goose. Yes. Yep. And uh, some of some people who are old enough will remember that. This was a plane that was actually called the Hercules, but uh, the, its critics called it Spruce Goose because it was the federal government helped fund this, you know, Hughes Aircraft, this massive company that ended up being worth billions of dollars and, and to my knowledge, is in existence today, a uh, hugely valuable company. Uh, that was one of his companies that was the result of his invention and whatnot. So they, they got war contracts from the U.S. government during World War II, and and Hughes was very proud of of what he had provided to the military. And later, though, you know, the, you may recall those of you who who've read much about World War II, as often happens at the end of the war, it's almost like a sometimes there's a witch hunt for the people who are profiteering. It seems to happen at every war. Civil War, there was that people who were prosecuted and and shamed in the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, same thing in World War One, and then World War Two. Same thing. Uh, so Hughes was had made a lot of money. Hughes Tool Company uh, providing these you know things to the military relating to aircraft. And and Hughes was very proud of what he'd done. And one thing he'd done was spend a ton of money, his own as well as taxpayer money, on it's called it was called the Hercules. It was this the largest plane that had ever been built by far, and it was built of wood, yeah. plywood. <laughs> and he did that for a reason. I mean, he, uh, weight was important and he wanted to be able to get 750 people on this plane and at low cost. So it was a it was an engineering puzzle for him to be able to take these constraints, the constraints about the weight of the plane, you know, the size of the engine. You know, if you have a big, big, big engine, then there's, you know, at some point it becomes uh, self-defeating because it's too heavy. So at the time, no plane like this had ever been built. And 
I, I would suspect that many engineers would say it couldn't be built. Uh, and I know they did say that. And, and so that's kind of what led to this scandal where there was a hearing, you know, post-war hearing into the war industry and companies that had been paid large amounts of money. And so Howard Hughes came in and testified, and he was, he was indignant. He was very eloquent. Uh, he was this tall guy, nice-looking you know, you can imagine he wanders into Hollywood, you know, this not, this 18-year-old, what well, was almost a billionaire then, and uh, he walks into Hollywood and, um, and you know, he, he, uh, he, took, he took Hollywood by storm, and everywhere he went, he took by storm because he did have this forceful personality and tons of money behind him and youth. You know, he was so young when he was doing the things he was doing. Even at this time, he wasn't very old. So here he is at these hearings, and, and he, he was very articulate and insistent and even indignant. You know, sometimes you, you often at these hearings, you'll see the CEOs of companies, you know, they're, they're not apologetic, but they're very cautious in, in how they word their sentences. Instead, Hughes was, was, uh, ins- he was insulted. So he, uh, he, at, thereafter, he goes to the airport, at, and he notifies the press, and this airport where this plane was was stored, and it was said by everybody, it was kind of mockingly that this was just you know a boondoggle where he had made a bunch of money off the government. The government was so foolish letting him spend this money, and again, some of the money was his own money. But in any case, uh, but he was insistent that plane will fly, and all the newspapers had laughed at it and made these these mocking sort of accusations about him and his plane calling it the spruce goose. So he goes out there on this morning, the press has been notified. This just pops out of thin air. It wasn't like the day after the hearing. It was sometimes soon thereafter, but so he, uh, he goes out in this, in this large, large storage facility hangar, I guess, where it, it, it was stored and it had been there for several years. Just so you know, it, it's not as if this was just finished. It'd been finished years ago and had never been flown. So that's the reason, in fairness to the press, they thought the millions of dollars spent on this plane, uh, whatever it was, is a big number for that day. And to have it and for them to say, and engineers and experts say, this plane could never have flown. It should never have been done. The taxpayers' money was wasted. This is an example of abuses by corporations and blah, blah, blah. So so Hughes goes out there. They come. And he gets in this plane. He announces he's going to fly it. So uh, everyone is just, you know, uh, all agog at this. So uh, the, the plane's pulled out there. And he uh, it's a seaplane. So it has these things whatever you call um, you land yeah. on so so it's a seaplane but anyway so he takes off on the he's going down the, the, this runway so to speak or the water and uh and people are thinking it's not going to take off it's not going to take off and all of a sudden it goes airborne and he flies it around he didn't fly it far but he flies it around makes clear that this plane flies and then he brings it in has it towed back in the hangar and never touches it again <laughs> So he was just he I could talk a lot about this this guy and and my fascination with him then and to some extent today but he uh one one thing to keep in mind that kind of ties in with our purposes here is that uh he did go on to build his fortune um but in fairness he he had this it was almost like an oil well itself that's a good analogy Hughes Tool Company was throwing off so much profit that Hughes could do anything he wanted. When he decided to make a movie, money wasn't an issue. Um, 
and and he, you know he could afford to spend things to experiment on planes and and cars. He even designed a car that would run on steam, uh, but it ended up not being practical. But to him, it's fascinating. So he spent the money to do it. So so really, Hughes Tool Company is kind of the is the engine behind uh, much of what he did. But it, in his defense, he took that opportunity and did a great deal with it. He ended up. Um, he created, as I mentioned, Hughes Aircraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, later, there was what Hughes Medical Center. The medical institution, yes. Yeah, and um, at one point he owned. This is hard to imagine. He owned seventy-five percent of TWA. This is when TWA was the biggest airline in the world uh, in the late fifties. He owned seventy-five uh, percent of it, and he made a lot of shrewd investments. He uh, he also decided to move to Las Vegas in nineteen in the early mid 60s yeah mid 60s and he uh, acquired five or six or seven casinos mm-hmm. and it turned out that those Las Vegas was not nearly what it became you know in the 70s and 80s um, and today even but he was he had the prescience to to know that that made sense now we should we should talk about when we talk about his financial success, and how he his fortune grew to be among the largest in the world, which it was. It in today's dollars when he died, how much do we think there was? Fifty five billion. Yeah, so about fifty five billion in today's dollars. But that's a little deceptive because, you know, today you have somebody who's worth two hundred billion. Mm-hmm. So so while while t- today that's a hugely impressive. There's a period of time when he was the richest person in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he always stayed in the top three or four, but there was a time when he's rich in the world. So, um, 50, 55 billion though, does translate in terms of taking dollars then to now. It's just that now you have some crazy fortunes that weren't possible when you were, when you didn't have a digital world. <laughs> I mean, digital things, you know, you, you can take things to scale in a way that with uh, regular matter, you can't. Could you imagine him in the digital world? That would oh. be crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think he would have thrived. <laughs> oh, His yeah. Brain, yeah, he's, he's like an Elon Musk, he, sort of. Oh, yeah. He seems to be just one of those people that he has those passion projects, but he sees them through and they actually turn into things because he's he's a genius. He's really smart and he knows what he's doing. Yeah, yeah, you're right. They are passion projects. And he just, he had the luxury of only doing passion projects. Yeah, yeah, which is probably why... He went all the way through with them and went to see them till the end. Yeah, and and he and I, I like the fact that he was fearless. Mm-hmm. Uh, he would he would take chances in planes and elsewhere, but he, he they weren't reckless. Generally, mm-hmm. they were things that he felt, even though he's been was wrong a few times in these crashes, but he felt that he had the knowledge to be sure that he could do what he did. Yeah. And obviously, usually he was right because he did so many stunts and so many things that didn't result in crashes. Also, we should also, we should not fail to mention uh, one aspect of his life was that he was a bit of a womanizer. Um, it it wouldn't, you won't be surprised to hear that he dated a lot of actresses in, in Hollywood. And, and so there are all sorts of, of stories. Uh, odd, so he had all sorts of eccentricities. Um, he was a recluse for sure. But before he became so reclusive, he had this thing about germs. And he had you know, just some, uh, some eccentricities that, um, that resulted in people were always trying, worried that they would you know, misinterpret what he was doing or they would offend him or, 
or hand him, shake his hand when he didn't want his hand shaken. So people were a little bit on eggshells around him. And it, and and uh, who was it? Catherine Hepburn tells stories about, she dated him quite a while, and she tells stories, uh, Howard stories. And, and I'm sure they're true. He was just an odd character, uh, but but you, you couldn't miss him in any room that he was in. So um, he, became, he became more reclusive. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, it, you can probably say that it became mental illness mm-hmm. when he got older. Um, it, it, he, he ended up uh, just living inside these penthouses. He moved to the Desert Inn, uh, the top floors where he lived, which is one of the hotels he owned in Las Vegas, and lived there just in complete seclusion with just people who were, served him uh, coming in and out, maybe business, a couple, one business manager, I think, a guy by the name of Noah Dietrich, who was very close to him for years mm-hmm. uh, and very trusted. Um, and then he ends up moving to a hotel in Nassau again, you know, he he's on the top floor and no one sees him. He lives there in complete seclusion. And then he uh, he lived, went to a couple other places. He was occasionally in, I think, L.A. in, in a hotel. Yeah, and uh, he moved back to Las Vegas for just a tiny bit. And then eventually he ended up in Houston again. Yeah, yeah. So he had this entourage that traveled with him. And, and it didn't help him any. I mean, that's one of the problems with being so wealthy is that you you get to where there's no one who will say no to you. There's no one who will kind of grab you by the shoulders and, and look you in the eye and say, you know, you need to do things differently. Um, there was no one to do that for him. He didn't, he, he was married briefly to Gene P- Peters. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an alleged second marriage, but we don't know that that ever happened. Um, but anyway, Jean Peters, he married briefly. She was a, a star, was in several movies. I think that was her name, Jean Peters. Jean Peters, that's great. Yeah, and she was, in a, she was a star in a movie, a couple movies, uh, very attractive. But she would go out occasionally and visit him at the Desert Inn. And it was just too bizarre for her. And they were married for a while, and she's gone. She's out. Mm-hmm. So uh, they were divorced. So... He, uh, in a way, his life becomes sad later on. Uh, he was just overcome by things that 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 I'm confident that had he been a norm, had he not had so much money at that stage, he probably would not have drifted off as far as he did. There would have been someone to pull him back. Uh, but but that that this is the downside of that sort of wealth with no family. Mm-hmm. So he didn't have any kids by Gene Peters or anyone else that we know of, we're sure they would have come forward. So no children, no close relatives. So there was no one really in the world that was going to to give him that sort of sitting da- sit down that he should have had and that children would will do with parents and people who care about other people will do with those people, whether you call it an intervention, whatever you want to call it, it's something where you get their attention and, and affect their direction. Mm-hmm. In this case, you know, he was like a balloon in the wind, and, and wherever it went, whatever direction he's going, there's no one going to pull him back. 
And so it got worse and worse, and there are all sorts of bizarre tales about the way he lived his life. Yeah, and I think you're correct that some of it was definitely mental illness. I think the germ thing could have been, you know, OCD, some form of that. Um, and then probably with, like, as he got older, he probably got some form of dementia, and then he just mm -hmm. he just got stuck in his ways. Well, there was an interesting story that will lead us to the discussion of, <laughs> of, of his estate planning, or lack thereof, was... Uh, because he was so notoriously reclusive, because he was known as somebody who did not want to have any communication with the world, um, it just his, his little world with his entourage, this person by the name of Clifford Irving, a ne'er-do-well writer, columnist or something, I mean, he was, he was kind of a, a serial sort of writer or... or uh, uh, he moved from from different jobs and different things, and it never was unnoteworthy. Anyway, so Clifford Irving, he uh, he comes up with this idea that he's going to write a book in which he describes uh, this meeting in the desert with Howard Hughes. Was it in the desert? Um, so it wasn't um, no. Clifford. Clifford was writing the biography, but it was supposed to be an authorized biography. Yes, that's okay. correct. So anyway, uh, this is coming back. So anyway, Clifford Irving, um, he he decides that he he can get away with an authorized biography. That Howard Hughes he runs into Howard Hughes, maybe not in the desert somewhere. So he runs into Howard Hughes, and and Howard Hughes says, "I want you to write my biography." So he writes this book. Random House or a large publisher pays a lot of money for this incredible book. I mean, this would be an exclusive. The world at the time had this fascination, you know, with Hughes in part because of the mystery. And and you can imagine somebody who gets an authorized biography from this recluse. So um, it was getting all this attention. Clifford Irving was just, you know, delighted. He had his contract and, and was going to make a ton of money. Um, the only problem was that Clifford Irving bet that Hughes would just let it go. Because in a way, if Hughes were that detached from the world, why would he care? You know, it's a he doesn't care what people think, obviously, yeah. or at least or it he, appeared. He might not know about the book even because he's that detached. Yeah, right. He could be so out of touch that he's not. No one knew what his condition was. So it was a, it was a gamble. But if Clifford Irving, as long as Hughes didn't speak up, Clifford Irving would have made a ton of money with this biography. So anyway, um, it turns out that Howard Hughes says that he makes a call and says he is alive. And so Congress, um, I remember that they had a hearing. This is how important he was. Congress is deciding how can we determine whether this this is fraud or whether he's alive today. And so he actually knows some of these older men who were senators at the time. I mean, they would be about his age. And so they knew him and spoke to him in his youth uh, in various capacities. Um, so he, they set up this call where I remember that the recording and people watched it. This was on primetime television, you know, interrupting you know, scheduled programming back when they had ABC, NBC, and CBS. So um, here you have the, the these congressmen gathered around a phone, and they're asking this person on the phone to talk about his past. So Howard Hughes had disclosed a means to reach him. He had said he wants to speak out against this and that he is alive and well. And and they at first were thinking, should we compel him physically to appear? Mm -hmm. But they were they you know at the time. 
they were he was a bit formidable even for for political figures in Congress and so they weren't prepared to to you know to get him too upset he was still a very powerful and influential man and he said he would make a phone call to to resolve this question of whether he was alive or dead and, uh, and this is all triggered by this book he ends up and for the first time people are hearing his voice and he's talking to these congressmen and he's very lucid I mean he's very he speaks in this authoritative voice uh, clearly he's not a guy who sounds like he's out there and and in Nana Land, which is the reputation he had, was that he had gone nuts, and and or some people suspected that they didn't know. Um, so he had this very lucid conversation about old times with some of these guys. He could say, "Oh yes, I remember when we uh, when there was a hearing in such and such date." And so um, it was very interesting thing to watch. And suddenly the world knew that these people authenticated his voice and that was also what was going on here is is they knew him and the reason that was important is they could authenticate so they did authenticate and said there's no question we're talking to Howard Hughes they talked to him about things that only he would know um so suddenly you know Clifford Irving's plan um goes afoul and so he <laughs> ends up being prosecuted I don't know what his sentence was but so uh, j- that was just an interesting sideshow. Now we'll move to what happens when a guy such as the one we described passes away. Would you expect him to have some sort of estate planning? Part of me's thinking no. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, we as rational people would. But. Yeah, you would think that he would, you know, have hired somebody along the way to do that because his parents had one. How else did he get all the money? And right, that's true. Like that. There was, there, so there was. You would think but. there was. So, talk a little bit about what they found. Yeah. So, um, he passed April, I believe, fifth of um, nineteen seventy six, and they found out that he passed um, without a will or an estate plan and that he didn't have anything. Um, But in the aftermath of his death, a lot of documents were brought forward um, alleging that they were his will and all of them were deemed forged. Tell the the story. (laughs) Some guy that claimed to have met him. Yeah, so um, after Hughes died, Melvin Dunbar came forward and he claimed... Melvin Dunbar. Yeah, Melvin Dunbar. Um, And he claimed that in 1967, Dunbar came across a man in the middle of the desert who was asking for a ride to the Sands Hotel. Um, And so, you know, he picked this man up, not knowing who he was or what he could do to him. And he took him back. He's being a good Samaritan. Yeah, yeah. And he took him back to the hotel because, I mean, you... Hopefully you wouldn't leave anyone out in the desert. It's kind of hot, dangerous out there. But um, but it's about two and a half hours. Yeah, it? yeah, it was pretty far. It was a far drive. Um, and so he took him back to the Sands Hotel, and then he said that Hughes revealed himself, you know, sitting in his passenger seat, and he told Melvin that he was going to give him one sixteenth of his estate, which was around in today's dollars, um, three point five billion dollars. And a few years later, Melvin said that Hughes sat down and wrote a will and gave Melvin a copy of it. And um, Melvin gave it to the courts and was like, here's this. But it was completely falsified. So just a lot of stories like that. And like you were talking about the woman who came forward and said they were married on international waters. Um, She couldn't even provide marital documents. And she still, in the end, got a part of his estate, like around $400,000. And they just paid her to go away. This is not Gene Peters. This is Terry Moore or Um, something. Yeah, Terry Moore. That's correct. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, all these people, <laughs> they have to pay off. Yeah. And they paid off Dunbar, too. Right? Um, they He didn't get anything because he falsified the document. So they were like, you're out of here. Terry Moore didn't even provide any, but she claimed that, you know, I don't think they could have done anything since they were married on international waters. She could have just been like, well, you know, we were technically out of the country at that point and so on. Um, and she said that they got divorced later on, but she couldn't provide anything from that either. Um, but mm. yeah, I mean, all kinds of stories, all kinds of people came forward with different documents. I read that over 600 documents were produced and nothing. Um, he did have the Sumar Corporation, which so kind of going backwards, that was the corporation that um, had all of his businesses inside of it. So it's like the parent. Yes, like the umbrella. Um and George Francom was his personal aide, and he did testify that um, when Hughes, let me see, when he set up the medical institute, that he had wrote a will then, and so um, Francom couldn't produce documents. But then Summa Corporation did a worldwide search, and they produced one single document, um, no signature, but it said that. Howard Hughes wanted all of his estate to go to the institute and fund that, but um, since it it wasn't signed and it looks like questionable handwriting, they they didn't go ahead and move forward with but it. But it was handwritten. Mm-hmm, it was handwritten, but um, they didn't move forward with it, and everything um, went into probate. So they had to just go through all of that. <laughs> you know, I didn't follow this a lot at the time. What was the date that he died? Um, it was 1976, April 5th, 76. 1976. So I, I didn't follow this much at the time. Um, but, you know, this went on for years. Oh, it went on until 2010, 34 years. Can you imagine? long time. Yeah. That has to be some sort of record. That's insane. I guess, I mean... When you hold a lot of wealth that the world has, they got to figure out what to do with all of it, especially if you don't have an estate plan. In these companies where tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of employees. Yeah. Um, I mean, Hughes Tool, Hughes Aircraft. Mm-hmm. It's, and now there are additional Hughes companies that were created I, you know, before. Yeah. I guess, oddly enough, they were created between the time that he passed away and they mm-hmm. resolved this estate. One thing that is fortunate here that may not be fortunate for for you or for me is we own businesses that when you have something that is in suspended action, that's in abeyance for this period of time, you know, the typical business is dead. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's going to be, you know, people, employees leave, senior employees leave because they're the ones who are trying to determine what their future is going to be. And so when they're in the C-suite, for example, or senior positions, it's always a sign if this starts down this road with probate and uncertainty, not knowing where the company's going to go, will it ultimately be dismantled? Those people flee. So it's a talent drain. It's a talent drain. But but even on a simpler level, with a smaller, much smaller company, which many of, of you, I think, can identify with, I've had a lot of clients with very small companies. I have companies that are smaller. So, I mean, I know that that there's no way a company's going to survive being in probate, not knowing what the final outcome is going to be. Mm-hmm. With with Howard Hughes, the reason it survived, and this is the only way that that, that happens, is that the company is so big and, and Hughes was so removed from it that they knew that whatever happened, 
this company will not be dismantled. Mm-hmm. And this company is kind of like too big to fail. Mm-hmm. If you want an example of too big to fail, that that would be an example where uh, I think that that his estate, the major assets were just confident that, yeah, we may be one set of shareholders or another set of shareholders, but whatever happens, this is a golden goose. I mean, this is this company is worth far more as a going concern than it could ever be if it fails. So it, it, it's true. In this situation, his estate managed to survive decades of, of murky discussions and, and understanding regarding whether it's, it's going to be, mm-hmm. who's going to be uh, senior board members, which is typically determined by shareholder status. So uh, it, it's amazing that, uh, that the company, that these assets held together as well as they did and today are thriving. So one thing that I find really interesting, though, is that you have somebody like Howard Hughes who, is this a case where he failed to plan, he just didn't give attention to it? Like often those are the cases we talk about on mm-hmm. here, where we, we think that if we sit across from him like you and I are, and we were to say to this person, look, you know, these people you care about in the world you know, are going to be hurt, we, we, you really need to take time to do this. We like to think that many of those people really – they would because they don't mean to that they're the people they care about in the world to not be benefited. But Howard Hughes, did he did he care? He didn't have he didn't have anybody, which is sad to say, but I guess when you don't like necessarily have a family or anything like that, maybe maybe you don't, just because like you said, maybe he thought that everything was big enough to sustain, which it was, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's yeah. just wild that you just really don't know what is going to happen to your $2.5 billion in that time, $55 billion now, what's going to happen to it after you die? That's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. And so um, what? how did it come out? Um, so it came out that the $2.5 billion was split between 22 of his legal cousins, um, and that was in 1983. And then there was a couple of things. Um, the Supreme Court even had to step in in the end because— um, The U.S. Supreme Court. Yes, the U.S. Supreme Court, because they had to figure out um, what company owned what, where the companies would go, and they kind of just determined that um, the Hughes Medical Institute owned Hughes Aircraft, and then they sold it off, actually, to General Motors in 1985. And then there also was— the inheritance taxes um, and Texas and California came for their claim or their share of it. Um, but the Supreme Court, were, they were like, no, those aren't yours. Um, and then, like I said, in 2010, after 34 years, it was all finally settled um, with the last like slice of his pie, um, which was the Summerlin Residential Development Community. And that was in Las Vegas. And that got um, sold off to a different company. So his companies just inherited those funds. So these assets, the core of the estate was split among these... The cousins. The cousins. Mm -hmm. 22? Yeah. And I mean, they had to go and determine who all those cousins were, which wasn't easy because DNA wasn't a huge thing back then. They didn't have it. So... So they ended up concluding there was no will, mm-hmm. and uh, that's where the laws of intestate succession come in. And then it's a matter of what state has jurisdiction in order to determine what state's rules would govern. 
But in this case, the rules about intestate succession would probably be pretty similar. Um, you know, generally they, they look for immediate family, and then if you don't have immediate family, which would include even parents, um, then they would go stretching out in the family tree to left or right, which would eventually bring in cousins. I wonder if these cousins were very distantly related. Um, they were. They were like third, fourth, fifth cousins. They weren't anybody that he would have known because okay. I know that he didn't have any immediate family. So the re- some of you may wonder, well, how is it that you would that they would split equally among them shares if they were like third cousins? Um, there's this concept in the law and in intestate succession in most states that you can have assets that are distributed equally to to everybody who is who is an heir, um, and it's called like per capita. Uh, but but there is an alternative where it it's per uh, per stirpes lineal descendants, um, and it, or it could be just per stirpes. And per stirpes, what that means is, it means that a, a third cousin. If their parent was, say, a sibling of the second cousin, um, then it could be that 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 child, if if they're the only surviving child of that cousin who had passed away, that sibling who had passed away, then they take that that parent's share. So, you know, the the division might be made at the first level where you have a survivor. So, say there are four siblings, and you have one sibling that's alive. So that would be the point where there would be a division of a fourth, a third, because there are four siblings. A dead person is the one who's leaving it. So they would take a, a third. And then if there are descendants of the other sibling, the other two siblings, if there are descendants, then that fourth would start at, at that level and then would be distributed below based on that that percent. So if there's one child of the deceased sibling, one child, then that child would get the entire 25%. So even though they're they're more removed in terms of their relationship, still they end up with the same percent because they're taking they're stepping into the shoes of their parent and they're an only child. And so the parent would have gotten in this case, excuse me, one third. So that means that one third goes to the child. Okay. Um, so you can end up in this situation. I'm pretty. I would guess that's what happened. Is yeah. you had more remote cousins who end up getting as much, and that can happen with per stirpes versus per capita, which capita means cap head. So per capita is just based on head count. So that's where you can even you have the same interest that would be inherited, even at different levels mm-hmm. of the same percentage. So in this case, what is the lesson? Um, first of all, it's, been, it, it's maybe more interesting to me than it is to any of you, uh, but but I, I, I did enjoy kind of refreshing myself a little bit on, on Howard Hughes. <laughs> um, so as to the fact that he had no will, part of me is thinking that he really didn't care. Yeah. I mean, he had no loved ones. He didn't have real relationships with these. I think that too. And I think that he was such a recluse that he just didn't want anybody to know about anything. So maybe he yeah. thought that like something would get out from his estate planner as well. And then people would know. But I mean, it did anyway. So. <laughs> yeah, he. that's a good point. He was a little paranoid. And 
I think that he'd be afraid for people to know the way his brain would work. And I think the more withdrawn you become that way, the the you you lose a, your grip on on rationality. And I think that he probably had a fear that people who thought they were in the will would have an incentive to hurry him along. Uh, you know, because you're in a position where nobody really loves you. Mm-hmm. He probably had that sense. Yeah, and, and it may have been true. So you you you're just very guarded and he may have been whether he di- actually had a will or not he definitely wouldn't have wanted it known yeah cuz yeah. cuz people benefit after your death if they know they're going to benefit they may have an incentive to do something yeah. or even not do something yeah you know i mean that may be more in the nature of not doing something and maybe he i mean like from my understanding none of that family ever reached out to him or anything so maybe he just held a grudge for that too and he didn't want to put anybody in his estate plan but that does bring up the fact that he could have donated the money like he like it said he wanted to in the one will so that's kind of odd that he never set anything up like that to just donate yeah the money. that's a good point um i i do that we know there are things he really cared about mm-hmm. in this world i don't know he may not care that much about people his yeah. personality i think he cared but he cared a lot about things, things. and like like a health institute mm-hmm. in a way that's caring about people but but he you know he would get fascinated by things like that mm-hmm. and, and so to just fund further ideas even after his death it's kind of odd that he didn't want to go and do that also yeah i think we can conclude i i, I buy your point i think that there are things he would like to have done mm-hmm. and and if uh, if somebody had had the authority or the chutzpah uh, to to say to him, you know, you really need to do this, but you know, everyone tiptoed around him, and um, he became the source of support, you know, for all these people, and that's a scary position to be in. You don't you don't want to be that person, you know, whether you're Elvis or whether you're Howard Hughes, you don't want to be somebody who people you know, at all costs will not say anything to you that you don't welcome as good news. Mm-hmm. That's not a healthy situation. No. It never ends well. No, he didn't even have any close friends. The people who were around him the most were his employees, people he paid to be there. Yeah. They weren't They weren't about to say anything at all, no. Yeah. I don't remember the name of the book. There was a book that I think it was written by Noah Dietrich that I read out of all the, the several books that I've read, read about him many years ago. Um, but, excuse me, I thought Noah Dietrich was a very credible person. He was around for a long time. And finally, Howard Hughes just, I think Howard Hughes, somebody, you know, put a thought in his head that he, I think he questioned Noah on something. I just remember that Noah said that he was summarily, he finds out without even a goodbye, without even a thank you, after decades of service. He's was no longer in the, you know, on the inside. Mm-hmm. He was out. And with Hughes, you're either in or out. Mm-hmm. There was no borderline. And it happened that summarily, without explanation, without a goodbye, without a thank you. Um, so that was that's the downside of of Howard Hughes. Yeah. But, and maybe just like you said, with Hughes, you're in or out. So maybe he just didn't want to juggle all of his grudges and how he felt about people in his estate plan or businesses or charities. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I think that that as we look at this story and think on our own smaller scales, you know, what about 
our priorities. I think that certainly in this case, we don't have to point out to you again that that a will is better still is a trust. Why don't we start with that? Mm-hmm. Um, a will would have been far better than where we ended up with. So, so let me first start by saying that. But far better than a will, far, far, far better would have been a trust. And that means no court, no hearing. Now, people can still bring a lawsuit, but the point is for the time being, you have an entity that owns it or you have a trustee that owns it and and can all the business can go on as usual. All the things that would otherwise go on are going on. It's kind of like you have a lawsuit, unlike probate, where you have suspension regarding who the owner is. Because remember, that's the purpose of probate. Probate's two primary purposes. Number one is to determine who now should be the, the owner of this property. Is there a will? If there is, bring it forward. If there's not, then we're going to look at the state law and we're going to determine. But either way, this gavel is going to go down and we're going to say who owns this person who's dead now, who owns their stuff. That's number one. The second purpose is, is to pay creditors. There, I mean, we all go out of the world. Almost everybody goes out of the world owing somebody something, even if it's a a utility bill that's unpaid. <laughs> I mean, pretty much everybody goes out of the world owing something to somebody. Well, how do you get paid? We get paid by showing up in, at a probate hearing, submitting your 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 bills or whatever claim you have to being paid, and and you get paid first. Mm-hmm. And so after after creditors are paid, then what's left goes to the people the court has decided now are the owners. So. That takes time. There's there's suspense about who is the owner as far as people doing business with companies are concerned. I mean, it's, I think you all get it. It's a mess. It's a mess for, for a business to carry on in the midst of probate in a vast majority of cases. So the, the ideal thing here for really better reasons than that, though, is that a trust would have been a way that he could. there could have been privacy, there would have been confidentiality, a trust doesn't have to be probated and all this information be out in the public, and, and Hughes would have been able to designate the people that would have control long after he was gone for a dynasty trust, I mean, a trust that would go on for decades. Now, he didn't know that you could do dynasty trusts at the time. There's called this thing called a rule against perpetuities. All that means is the law decided centuries ago that you don't want to have a trust in place forever because it ties up assets. It's bad for commerce. It's bad for the economy, for things to be locked down. And you can't, what the, what the law calls, you can't alienate stuff. You can't sell it. So real estate gets what's, it was called entailed. And meaning long ago in England, stuff would get tied down and stay in families mm-hmm. for literally four and 500 years. That's not good for the economy. So that whole concept in America was rejected. So we had the rule against perpetuities. Now we've decided that, that we can have protections against those bad things and still have dynasty trusts. Well, Howard Hughes could have had a dynasty trust, and it could have been in effect for his lifetime and the lifetimes you know, to come. Um, there are some constraints on that, but the point is he could have accomplished so much more if he had given it to And I have to believe, even when you don't have children in this world, to think that, that you could, in an orderly way, fulfill, you know, that whatever thing it is that you care about in this world, I'm sure we know from his early life, there are things he cared about in this world. It, as you said, he was passionate about. So I, I don't think it was that he could care less. Uh, he spent too much of his time caring about his reputation and about his, uh, these achievements in the world. Um, I just think that, I think that he got distracted 
I think that he drifted, and a lot of old people do that. And just because you're a billionaire doesn't mean you're... Well, and I mean, like, a lot of people who don't have families or just spouses, they're kind of like, well, what's the point? Like, you know, it'll, yeah. just, it'll just go on. But it, it doesn't yeah. necessarily do that. And I think that's the importance of understanding all of this is it doesn't just go on. It goes into multiple different places where you probably didn't want it to go when you were alive. And mm-hmm. after you pass, you, you, I mean, you can't do anything else about it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, he probably wasn't in a frame of mind because he, as I think we agree, I think experts would agree, he probably was mentally ill mm-hmm. at, later in life. So maybe that's the best explanation is that he was mentally ill and and um, couldn't take care of the things that in a clear in a clear state of mind that he would have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was a control freak. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so, I completely agree with that. Yeah. So a little speculation here, but uh, this was—I'm glad you chose this, Marley. Yeah, I, when me I too. saw I, I saw last night that this was going to be the topic, and <laughs> so I thought, oh, that that'll be interesting. Yes, yeah. Uh, I still have this letter, though. I'll, uh, maybe I love that. I'll show it to you sometime. Yes. <laughs> I, I kept it, uh, and they—they they probably thought, who is this eccentric little kid that? <laughs> is focused on Howard Hughes. They probably knew how crazy he was at that time. That's somebody to look up to, though. I mean, he did all kinds of things. He did so a lot he's of amazing. good. He's amazing. He did. He did a lot of good. Um, so so I, I kept this letter, but um, who would have foreseen, you know, the direction his mm-hmm. life would take? At that time, it wasn't clear. He was still reclusive, mm-hmm. but that was at the early stages. So that was before he became what he must have become not long after. So with that, we wrap up this episode. Uh, this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Oh, remember, press the like button. That helps a lot. And even better, subscribe. Um, you know, as we always say, we don't make money from these podcasts. I mean, I can tell you, um, we, we promote some for uh, Tucker Allen, which is good. Uh, but do I think that business directly comes through this? I don't think so. I I hope it does. But we really do it because we think it's helpful to you and we kind of enjoy doing it. But but we wouldn't do it if we didn't think it was helpful to you. Uh, So we we need to hear from you that you like it, that you enjoy it. And the more numbers we see of that, the more encouragement we get. So please uh, like and, and hit the subscribe button. This has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.